So welcome to Proverbs class number seven. My name is Doug Taylor. Very glad that you could uh, join us today. And we are going to be in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 14. Again, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 14. And that verse reads as follows. It says, The wise hide knowledge, and in the mouth of a fool his destruction is close. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 14, The wise hide knowledge, and in the mouth of a fool his destruction is close. Now, if you've been through the drill with me before, you know that what I'm about to ask is, what are the questions? In other words, what questions come to mind when we read that? Is it clear and obvious to us exactly what it means? Or are there some things that don't necessarily make sense or we're not sure about or that seem a little bit fuzzy? So let me read it one more time. The wise hide knowledge, and in the mouth of a fool his destruction is close. So any thoughts from any of you about questions that we might ask about that verse? So here are some that came to mind uh, as I was putting this together. It says, the wise hide knowledge. We could ask, what does it mean by hiding knowledge, and why do they do that? Why would the wise hide knowledge? So there's a question. The verse says, in the mouth of a fool his destruction is close. Well, we could ask, why is the fool's destruction close in his mouth? Why doesn't it just say, uh, for a fool his destruction is close? Why does it say, in the mouth of a fool? His destruction is close. What exactly is King Solomon trying to get across to us with that? And then, what does the first half really have to do with the second half of the verse? Because as we've touched on before, generally these verses deal either with opposites or some type of a comparison of two things in the two halves of the verse. Not every verse is like this, but most of them, there's a first half and a second half and there's some kind of a comparison uh, that's going on there. Okay, and Peggy, you said because it's, in, in our mouth, it's our mouth that gets us into trouble. <laughs> and yes, especially all of ours. I think we all have that, uh, have that challenge. Uh, and you're absolutely right. It's things that we say that can get us into trouble. So let me suggest that just because we have the truth, doesn't mean we should always tell it, because it actually could harm somebody. In, in the life of wisdom, or in wisdom, there are certain people who aren't on the level to be able to accept a particular idea. Maybe it's too abstract, or maybe they're emotionally not ready for it, maybe they have to be taught slowly until they can emotionally accept it. So, just because we know something doesn't mean that uh, we should tell over everything we do. I know when I was first leaving uh, and, and making the transition from uh, the, uh, the Christian approach that I had into understanding Torah, 
if someone, you know, way early on in, in my uh, Christian days had sort of dumped the whole load of Torah on me, I would not have been ready to accept it. I would not have been uh, ready to, to understand it. And so it actually could have been destructive if someone had done that to me. Uh, rather, I had to kind of move slowly at my own pace until I was ready for certain ideas, uh, and then uh, I could accept them, and then I could understand them. Also, um, if you think that someone might misunderstand a piece of knowledge, you could harm the other person or yourself, and they might come out against you. Uh, you might end up, you know, pushing too hard on something, or, or pushing the wrong way, or whatever, and uh, they might, you know, react against you. So, when you have knowledge, you also have to have the intelligence along with it to know when and to whom and how much of that knowledge that you should share. So, in this case, the verse seems to be talking about the kind of fool who has real knowledge, but he's lacking the understanding of when to divulge it and when not to divulge it. That's, that's what he's missing. And if he divulges it, either where the other person doesn't accept it, because he's not intellectually ready to accept it, or he's, the other person is not emotionally ready to accept it, or because the other person will misunderstand, then that person is going to have problems. And so that seems to be what the verse is telling us with regard to his destruction is close. The wise hide knowledge in the sense of hiding it in that they only bring it out when it's an appropriate time to do so. And so in a certain situation, they may be very, very quiet uh, and not say anything. Uh, you know, where maybe everybody else is talking and throwing ideas around and they recognize, nah, this is not the time or the place. So the wise person takes that into account in the mouth of a fool who's just going to blurt everything right out there his destruction is close because he's going to get himself into trouble by doing that. So we have to be very, very careful with wisdom and only divulge it when people are ready for it. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll take, I'll take no response as a yes. Okay, thanks Peggy. So there's also a second interpretation of this verse. And the second interpretation, and there are, there are often a number of valid interpretations to a verse. It's not that a verse necessarily has only one interpretation. There can be more than one. Uh, so a second interpretation would be that when it says the wise hide knowledge, it means that by hiding it, they make the knowledge a part of them, like it's second nature. The wise person reviews the ideas over and over again so much that the ideas then become a part of him like a second nature and he starts to think that way. So the knowledge becomes the way he thinks. Uh, he, he starts to see things on a, on a, on a different plane. Uh, and so the second half would be talking about someone who has knowledge, but it's not a part of him. So it gets forgotten, it gets lost, maybe he reacts emotionally in a particular situation instead of acting rationally uh, through his intellect, and so he's going to find himself in difficulty. 
a, a key idea in Mishlei is that the knowledge has to become a part of us. If all we do is read stuff uh, and sort of gather information, that's kind of like a donkey carrying books. You know, you have a lot of facts, but they don't affect you. Uh, and one of the points that I think we brought out in an earlier class and, and one that I've mentioned in my Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews class is that it's better to understand one idea clearly than many ideas superficially. Uh, we're in a society that loves to cover ground. Uh, you know, we, we've, we've got this syllabus set up or we've, we've got this body of knowledge and we've got to cover the whole thing in this one quarter, this one semester or, or, or whatever. And so we, we do what I call glide across this stuff sometimes like a greased pig on ice. You know, we skate right across the top, never digging down to really understand the idea or have it, make a, have it become a part of us. But the, the one idea that we really go over and over and over again that really becomes a part of us has a, has a much bigger impact on our lives than 50 ideas that we may just know superficially. Um, and both Rashi and the Ibn Ezra say that the wise go over that knowledge so that they shouldn't forget it. So review becomes a very big part of their life, reviewing uh, the ideas that they learn. In this case, in this interpretation, the second half of the verse would then also be talking about a person that studies and has knowledge, but he never makes it a part of him. So the knowledge becomes lost. For example, a lot of people, if you ask them, can't remember a lot of what they learned in high school or college. You know, it's been lost. They didn't go over it, they didn't review it, um, and so that knowledge goes away. In fact, I heard of one study where they looked at valedictorians uh, of colleges to try to find out, well, what was the common thread in those people? And one of the things they found was that on average, those students would review their class notes within about five hours after the class. And I understand there is research that shows that if you review new material that you've learned within about 24 hours of, of learning it, your retention goes way up. So that review becomes a huge part of the wise person's uh, process in this. <coughs> and even though there's a huge amount of knowledge out there, we don't particularly have an obligation to finish it. I mean, there is way more knowledge than we will ever get through in our lives. There's way more Torah knowledge uh, than we can get through. But we still have an obligation to be involved. We don't have an obligation to finish. So it's not about covering huge amounts of ground. It's about being in the process of learning and having that learning affect us. Um, the main thing is to go only at a pace where you can absorb the knowledge so then it can affect you. It's not about having lots of facts. It's about absorbing that knowledge so it has an impact on our thinking uh, and on our life. So unlike, you know, maybe certain academic courses or whatever, in Torah we shouldn't be in a rush to move faster than we can absorb. Uh, and this is where we kind of have to know ourselves and know what we can absorb, what we can't, how fast we can absorb it, how fast we can't. Uh, because if I rush through something and then I forget it, um, you know, three weeks later, what was the point of the exercise? So, so that's the second interpretation. On the wise hide knowledge 
and in the mouth of a fool his destruction is close. Uh, does that make sense? And any any questions about that verse? Okay, good. Let's move on then. Proverbs chapter 10, the next verse is verse 15. And it reads, The wealth of a rich man is like a fortified city, and what breaks the poor is their poverty. The wealth of a rich man is like a fortified city, and what breaks the poor is their poverty. So what kind of questions might we ask ourselves about that verse? What is King's... Well, even before we get to what King Solomon is trying to get across to us, let's just get the questions out on the table that we want to try to, to answer. The wealth of a rich man is like a fortified city, and what breaks the poor is their poverty. Any thoughts about questions? Okay, Peggy, the wealth could be your wisdom in Torah. That's, that could be true. In this case, what we'd like to do is stay with the literal meaning of the verse unless we really run into a snag and we have to uh, figure that it can't possibly mean that. Um, and your poverty is what will kill you because you haven't studied. Okay, we'd have to go down the road to ask how that will how that will kill you, and we've talked about the importance of knowledge and how that can make make mistakes. So if we interpreted it um, in in the way that you've described, we could say, okay, the wealth of one who is rich in Torah is like a fortified city because it it can protect him, uh, and then a person who is poor in Torah knowledge, uh, that's going to end up breaking them. Okay? And you've said, in other words, when you have wisdom, you are blessed. Yes. Okay? Uh, when you haven't studied, you aren't wise, and therefore you make lots of dumb mistakes. Absolutely. So that would be one way to interpret the verse. We could take that as that King Solomon is saying there's an allegory here that he's talking about wealth in terms of, of Torah. Here are a couple of questions that, that came up as, as I was preparing. How is the wealth of a rich man like a fortified city? If we really talk about a rich man, I mean, I'm, talking, I'm not talking here allegorically about Torah, but truly, somebody that's got money. Um, how, is, how is their wealth like a fortified city? What does it mean... When it says, what breaks the poor is their poverty, what does it mean to break the poor? Um, that's kind of a funny term. Uh, how, what, what does that mean? And why does poverty break them? And then, as we asked in the previous verse, what's the first half have to do with the second half? Is King Solomon getting at two things that are opposites here? Or what exactly is he is he going for? Okay. So, and, and our, our, uh, and, and that's okay, Peggy, that when you said, uh, when you 
commented there that you don't know. The, the first step in the process is to try to get our questions on the table. We may not be able to answer them, but at least we want to get them down uh, and out because the questions guide our understanding uh, and our journey in this. Uh, in, in, I think, American society, particularly, we're quick to jump to answers. Uh, and what, one of the things that we, we have to learn, and was one of the greatest lessons that the rabbis taught me years ago, was the importance of questioning, of asking questions and asking questions on your questions uh, before necessarily we ever seek the answers, uh, so that we be, can uh, begin to understand the parts that we do know and the parts that we don't know, and the questions can guide our inquiry and our, our pathway. What seems to be going on here is that King Solomon seems to be advocating, at least in the first half, wealth as some time as some type of value system, like it protects you, because uh, he's saying it's like a fortified city. So, if we take wisdom out of the equation, and we just look at rich and poor, let's forget wisdom. Let's just look at the practical thing, you know, your bank accounts and so forth, a rich person and a poor person. We could say that without wisdom, it is better to be rich than to be poor. I mean, if something happens, like your plumbing breaks, you can afford to hire a plumber to fix it. Uh, if your car breaks down, you can just go out and buy a new one. If your computer doesn't work, you can get a new one of those. I mean, it's pretty hard, I think, to argue with the idea that, all of the things aside, it's handier to have money than to not have money. Similarly, if we look at, say, a war situation, if one side has better fortifications than another side, then generally, all of the things being equal, they'll do better. Uh, because if you were in the midst of a, of a shooting battle, with uh, one other person. So it's just the two of you out in the middle of a big barren desert and you know you've each got guns. Wouldn't you rather have a big wall protecting you from him and maybe you're shooting out a little window and he's out there in the open and has no protection. So the fortification uh, is a good thing. The Ibn Ezra, who is uh, one of the great Torah commentators, says that at times Wealth can save you, even though you're not wise. And that's what the verse, uh, from his standpoint, is saying. In other words, apart from wisdom, it's better to be rich than poor. But the ultimate protection in this world is wisdom. So the verse is saying that in certain situations, without wisdom, one way is better than the other. Having money is better than being poor. But in all areas, the real security only comes from wisdom. And Rashi holds that the, the wealth refers to wealth of Torah knowledge, which, Peggy, you mentioned before, which will be like a fortified city to the person. In that sense, then, what breaks the poor, that would be those who don't have Torah knowledge, is their lack of Torah knowledge. That is they'll make mistakes and they'll suffer consequences in life as a result of that. So that's the, that's the uh, interpretation that, uh, that you gave and that uh, is the position that, uh, that Rashi holds. 
the Rabbeinu Yonah, another great commentator, um, and yes, Peggy, your money, and as a practical fortification, is your is your wall, uh, because it's just better to have that. I mean, you have resources, you have options, you have more opportunities, more things you can do. Uh, the uh, I mean, if if two people had to leave the city and one had no money and one had you know, uh, plenty. The one who has to leave the city who has no money has to walk. The one who has money could hire a car, take a cab, buy a car, take the train, take a ship, uh, assuming you're in a port, fly a plane, and so forth. So they have a lot more options as a result of that. Interestingly, the Rabbeinu Yonah takes a different view of this verse. He holds that the verse is talking about the incorrect views that people have about their wealth. The rich think they have security because of their wealth. But as we see in life, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, challenges and problems and sickness and divorce and all types of unpleasant things happen to the rich just as well as to the poor. Uh, plus, a rich person can lose all their wealth, sometimes overnight, which can put them in a very difficult situation. The poor, on the other hand, they're worried about their poverty. They think they're in a difficult position. But in fact, what's really important in life is a person's righteousness, the way he lives his life. The real things that matter life and blessings are not functions of wealth. You may be familiar with the uh, the verse in uh, Perke Avos, Ethics of the Fathers, where the sages say, who is wealthy? He who is satisfied with his portion. So from the Rabbeinu Yonah's standpoint, the verse is showing the error that can be made by both the rich and the poor because the rich think they have security. They think that what they have will save them. While the poor think that they're insecure because of their poverty. Yet neither one is correct because it's how you live your life, not what you have or don't have, that really makes the difference. And living in line with reality is the true security, no matter how much money you have. So there are several different interpretations of, uh, of this verse. Um, uh, the, the first one being that uh, wealth can protect you in the absence of wisdom better than being poor. Uh, Rashi holding that wealth refers to Torah knowledge, which will be like a fortified city to you, and that the lack of Torah knowledge uh, will end up breaking the poor, and that their poverty is their lack of Torah knowledge. And then the Rabbeinu Yonah's position that uh, both sides are incorrect because both think their security lies either in what they have or what they don't have, and yet neither one is correct that the important thing is living your life in a righteous way and living in line with true reality. Okay, let me pause there and see if we have any questions on that verse. Okay, good. Thank you.
So let's move on to verse 16. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 16. And it says, The actions of the righteous are for life, and the products of the wicked are for sin. But by sin here, it means failure. So a person will, will fail. So the actions of the righteous are for life, and the products of the wicked are for sin or failure. Okay? So, what kinds of questions might we raise about that verse? The actions of the righteous are for life, and the products of the wicked are for sin or failure. Any questions come to mind? Anything unusual about the verse or something that doesn't seem quite right? Okay. So let me raise a few. What does it mean that the actions of the righteous are for life? I mean, that seems like a kind of a funny way of saying something, and I'm not we're not necessarily quite sure, just maybe on an initial read of that, what that means. The actions of the righteous are for life. So, so there's a question. Then it says, the products of the wicked are for sin. W what are the products of the wicked? We'll need to define what we mean by products of the wicked, or what we think King Solomon's trying to communicate to us. Now, we've talked before about how these verses are often in two halves. But you'll notice the first half talks about the actions of the righteous. The second half talks about the products of the wicked. Why does it say actions in one half but products in the other? Why doesn't it refer to actions in both halves? In fact, why doesn't the verse say the actions of the righteous are for life and the actions of the wicked are for sin or for failure? And so then that raises the question of, well, what does the first half have to do with the second half, and how are those connected? So my friend and mentor, Rabbi uh, Moskowitz, wants to suggest, uh, to, to ask here about opposites. And he says there are two types of opposites. There are opposites with a mean, like hot and cold, and the mean that's in between is warm. And then there are opposites without a mean, like sharp and dull. I mean, there's no middle ground there. There's just sharp and there's dull. There's no mean that we can describe. And the verse seems to hold that there's a good life and there's a terrible life. And there doesn't seem to be anything in between. I mean, it talks about the actions of the righteous are for life, and the products of the wicked are for sin. It's pretty black and white. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any, any middle ground here. So why is it that King Solomon would seem to accept that either you live the good life or the bad life, and there doesn't seem to be anything in between? I mean, it just seems to be you got to take one or the other. So... When a person is studying the true life, and is really looking for the best life, usually he isn't living the best life at that moment. And he may not even have the right motive, he may have the wrong motive for searching for the best life. 
Because when you're on the way to something, you can't say that you're partway there because you're not there yet. It's sort of like, you know, you drink a glass of water when you're thirsty. If you stopped partway through, you'd still be thirsty. So you finish the entire glass and then you're not thirsty. So when you're going toward the best life, you don't yet have the best life. So now, let me digress just a little bit and talk about uh, a Hebrew word called taiva. Taiva is a desire such that when you give it to yourself, it satisfies you temporarily, but then it awakens that desire to a higher degree, so you're not satisfied. And the Torah is against taivas. Uh, as, as a physical example, from my standpoint, certain sugary drinks are like this. The more you drink, the more you want, and you're never satisfied. You just keep wanting more. Now, a regular pleasure is quite okay, and the Torah supports this. The, the Torah has nothing against legitimate pleasures. In fact, it's very supportive of those. Uh, and uh, there's an interesting uh, thing, quote in the Talmud that we're not going to go into right now in this class, uh, but I think we may have touched on it before. It says, a person who doesn't uh, take advantage of a legitimate pleasure when it's in front of them loses his portion in the world to come. Um, and uh, the idea, and, and I'll just touch on it briefly, is that if, if you can't enjoy a legitimate pleasure here, um, then how are you going to be able to enjoy the ultimate pleasure of Torah learning and uh, being involved in the world of ideas uh, in the world to come? So the Torah is not at all against pleasure. Um, and that, that section in the Talmud really begs a, a much greater elaboration, which I'm not prepared to do at this time, but uh, just, just to touch on that. And I use that to emphasize the point, because there are some people that think that somehow it's a good thing uh, if you avoid um, certain legitimate pleasures of this life. Uh, in fact, there are certain religious approaches, which you are probably familiar with, that think that asceticism, like denying yourselves legitimate pleasures, like, oh, I shouldn't enjoy eating, or I, uh, you know, shouldn't uh, in, engage in, um, you know, uh, lawful and acceptable sexual relations, is somehow a good thing. And that's not the Torah's approach at all. The Torah uh, supports uh, legitimate pleasures. So what I want to do is show uh, what a taiva is and how it works. So a taiva is a desire for something, and the nature of that desire is such that the more you have it, the more you'll need it, and the less satisfied you'll be. So it's like an addiction. Like the more you have, the worse it gets. So let's consider uh, success. Um, and Peggy, yes, that particular religious approach you're describing, I think you're absolutely right on target. Um, let's consider success. A person starts out wanting a few things. Say, a nice home, a nice car, maybe a stereo system, uh, a nice computer, whatever. But for some people, the family and becomes secondary, and the pursuit of the money becomes primary. Now the Torah is not against wealth. 
having money and safety and security to the degree that money provides that. The Torah is not against that at all. Those things are fine. But if the drive for money becomes the money per se, just to accumulate money, that's a taiva. Okay? If somebody's on that treadmill where they just have to have more and more and more just for the sake of the money, that's a problem. Uh, a man who I think was once the richest man in the world, uh, maybe about a hundred years ago, uh, I believe was asked by a reporter, uh, how much is enough? And his reply was, just a little bit more. Okay, so if the money is becoming the object, then that's a tithe, because you just keep getting more and it never satisfies you and you have to have more and that doesn't satisfy you and you get on this treadmill and you can't get off. So if you start going for success itself, where success itself becomes a value, then you're in a position of potentially destroying yourself. Now success, interestingly, is really a comparative thing. I mean, if we lived on a, on a, a tropical island, you know, we might measure success on how many coconuts you have, or, or something like that. Success generally comes only in comparison to someone else. So, you know, I'm successful if I beat that guy, or I'm successful if I have more money than that person, or I am successful if I uh, did that. Or, success really comes about my impression of how others view me. Because when I'm comparing myself to someone else, okay, like, gee, I won over that guy, I'm relying on an impression I have of how others view me, or perhaps how I view myself. For example, winning a gold medal at something, or getting uh, people to envy me because I'm a star, uh, or something like that. So we could define success as when somebody wants to be like me. You know, that's success. That's the emotion. Success is when I think somebody wants to be like me. Uh, because, gee, I just won at that, or I have more money than so-and-so, or uh, uh, I, I've... Um, you know, manage to achieve this and other people haven't. And and that can get into people, my, my impression that what I want is to get people to envy me. Now, at that point, I'm not experiencing anything. What I'm actually doing is I'm interpreting how you view me. And based on that interpretation, I feel good. So take an actor. An actor, say, performs in a play, and then people clap afterwards. Now, he's not experiencing what the people felt during the play. He is only seeing the results of that emotion. So he interprets that they would like to be like me, or they would like to be me. And his good feeling that he gets is an interpretation on the basis of how he interprets what he sees those people doing. Now, which is more satisfying to the emotions? The interpretation of pleasure or the feeling of pleasure? 
if you see the difference. <clears throat> Which would be more satisfying to your emotions? The interpretation of pleasure or the actual feeling of pleasure? Any thoughts about that? Which of those two? Pause, Peggy, because it looks like you're writing something. Right. The actor feels better based on his interpretation, but he's not actually experiencing something. He's interpreting something that he sees. So what I want to suggest is that if it's only based on your interpretation, it's not going to be totally satisfying because you're not experiencing anything. It's based on, on your understanding. But if you enjoy ice cream or getting together with friends or something like that, uh, that can be a very positive thing. But if my enjoyment is dependent on my interpreting how the other person feels about me, then I would suggest that that's not as satisfying as a real experience. So it's it might be like, this is maybe not the best analogy, but like having a bite of ice cream, but not really satisfying yourself. So what I'd like to suggest is that the nature of the satisfaction of success is such that it cannot be totally satisfying because we're not actually experiencing anything. It's just our interpretation of how other people feel about me. Now, there's not anything necessarily that we need to do about this. Um, nothing directly. I mean, we can just review these ideas until we begin to see the truth of them. And once we find ourselves drawn into looking at things along this line, then we start analyzing and thinking about them, and that, that process begins to affect us. And we do this again and again. Uh, the idea has to become real to our emotions. We don't get change overnight. It's just the slow review of these ideas over and over again that begins to change us. Uh, we can't force a change. Uh, and in order for a change to be real and not faked, the ideas have to really affect us, uh, which can happen just through going over the ideas of, of Proverbs. And that's why we go over so many different verses on so many different cases, because then we begin to see that the life of taivas, the life of desires, doesn't really satisfy us, but all it does is just increase our desires. And the change then comes naturally as a result of our knowledge. So, a multitude of ideas, as we talked before, that aren't clear won't affect our soul in the same way as one idea that is totally clear. Uh, and it's that idea that affects our soul, uh, that is totally clear, that can affect our soul the most. So how does that knowledge affect a soul? I'd like to suggest that a human being is made up of two parts. There is their emotions, and then there is their soul that helps them see truth and reality. Uh, 
and, and we both have those. We sometimes call them the intellect and the emotions. Now there is this thing called rationalization. People rationalize all the time. Uh, you know, generally whatever we do, we think it's right. And Hitler thought that too. You know, and I'm sure that Genghis Khan thought that and uh, Al Capone thought that. Every human being has to see that they're right in their own eyes because if they saw the truth that they weren't, they wouldn't be able to live, uh, live with it. So they have to think that what they're doing is right. And so when a person is rational and his actions are a result of his rationale, that's not rationalization. Um, so if I make a rational decision, you know, I make the choice to take the job in Atlanta instead of Chicago and by analyzing all the various factors and deciding that Chicago's or Atlanta is, is the best choice for me, then that's not rationalization. Rationalization is when we do an act, right or wrong, and then we bring in an argument as to why it's right to justify it. Uh, somebody sees a car and goes and buys it because they just quote, fell in love with it, unquote. And then they go do the research and find that, uh, yeah, J.D. Power rated that car as number three in durability uh, over the last three years. See, then we go find the intellectual reasons to support the decision that our emotions already make. So there's a real difference here. Rationalization has nothing to do with reality. It's just about a person making himself correct by trying to come up with ideas uh, and facts to support a decision that was already made irrationally. Um, and the reason people do that is because we're suggesting that it's impossible for a person to see the truth and not live it. So let's look just a little bit more at success. When you're striving for success, are you trying to satisfy yourself now, or are you really not living in the present, but in a different time and a different place? For example, take a war veteran who hits the floor when he hears a car backfire. You know, a lot of people came back from Vietnam, the Gulf War, uh, Iraq, and so forth, and their, their program, when they hear very loud noises that sound like gunshots, they immediately react. Now, that war veteran is living in a different time and place than in the present. Because when he has that reaction, he's not making a decision about present life. He's making a decision about something that happened in a different time and place. So sometimes we're affected by emotions that are, what you could say, left over from previous experiences. Um, for example, when we first realized that uh, our when we first realized our parents were who they are, we looked up to them and wanted to be like them. Now we're the parents, but that emotion can still be there even though I'm earning a living and I might be married and I might have kids and so forth. Um, now that old emotion is taking place at a different time. So most of the fantasies, perhaps not all of them, but I'd suggest most of them, are because we're enjoying a different time in a different place, and that's where the, our emotions get stuck in that different time. And because the emotions get stuck in a different time, it's very difficult, if not impossible, for them to be totally satisfied. 
For example, if you have a daydream, well, which is better, the daydream or the real thing? And of course, it's, it's the real thing. But if I'm daydreaming, I'm not in the real thing. Uh, so by definition, the daydream can't be fulfilling because it's not the real thing. And uh, Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to hold that this is the source of all our desires and our fantasies. The desire for something that may have occurred or could have occurred some other time. And we end up with no real enjoyment because we're not in the present moment. We're, we're living in some past moment or we're worried about some future moment or something that's going on. So if my desire is dependent on what another person thinks or the past or even maybe what might happen in the future, then I'm going to suggest it's not satisfying. And those are the types of things that we often get drawn into. Okay. Are we doing okay so far? Any questions up to this point? One more step to take. Okay, good. So one more step. One of the biggest areas that we get drawn into, but never get satisfied by, no matter how much we get of it, is this thing called gossip. A person is, I would suggest to you, never satisfied no matter how much they get of it, even after hours of gossip. So what draws a person to such a quantity of it? Why is this draw so strong? Because sometimes it can seem like the desire for gossip eclipses all of the other desires. Any thoughts about why the desire for gossip is so strong in people? Just pause, Peggy, because it looks like you're typing something in. Why is gossip such a strong draw? Okay, you say, I don't know how to get away from people who gossip. It's very difficult because they want to draw you into it and they want to know everything that is going on. Absolutely true. Uh, very, very difficult uh, thing to deal with. And we'll talk about that here, uh, maybe about some practical aspects uh, in just a second. Let's first define what gossip is. Gossip is when you're out to destroy another person. I mean, when we talk about that person, they're not there, so we don't see the suffering of the other person. And to the degree that we engage in gossip, we're really cowards. I mean, we wouldn't go stick a knife in the other person, although we might want to. So what we do is we talk about another person in order to sort of bypass our guilt. 
because uh, I'd really like to go, you know, uh, jab at that person, but I'll wait till they're not around and I'll go tell somebody else about them because that's a whole lot safer or appears to be. I mean, if we take uh, an extreme case, uh, we could consider what's the enjoyment of a sadist? It's to see someone else suffer. Now, does he experience the other person suffering? No. His pleasure is based on the interpretation of another person. So that's one of the things around uh, gossip. We're back to that interpretation issue. And the second thing is that we can't accept it that we actually destroyed someone. Like we caused them to commit suicide or to cry for three days or whatever because that would make us feel too guilty. So I would submit that a person who gossips, gossips because he doesn't want to see how vicious he is. And that, the act of gossiping, is even less satisfying than other things because the satisfaction that you're trying to get out of it is based on your interpretation and second you can't even accept it when it's successful um, it's sort of like being injected with a taste of ice cream and it's always in your mouth for your whole life and you can't get rid of it but you can't ever eat enough to get you know the satisfaction so the gossip never really satisfies you and that helps explain the verse. There is no in-between. Uh, going back to the beginning verse when we talked about there didn't, you know, there, didn't, there are some things, King Solomon seems to accept you either have the good life or the bad life, and there's nothing in between. There is no in-between. You either have true ideas, or we live in a fantasy world. And if we live in a fantasy world, then we get caught up in things that just awaken our desires with no real satisfaction. Which again is... Uh, you know, maybe worse than drinking a really sugary drink, sugary drink that makes you want more uh, and you're never satisfied around that. Now, Peggy, to your point, how do you get away from people who gossip? Um, that's a difficult one, uh, but there are some practical things that you can do. Uh, there are some things that you can say that can be sort of showstoppers in that. Uh, when somebody starts to tell you gossip, uh, you can interrupt them right away and say, why are you telling me this? Um, which can cause them to, uh, to you know, consider what's really going on. Uh, you can also ask them, how do you know that's true? Uh, and you can also say, I don't want to talk about somebody who's not here uh, to defend themselves. Uh, so, it does take some, some action on our part, which is, uh, you know, socially difficult to do. Uh, but it's one of those things where we don't want to hear it, we don't want to be a part of it, and so to the degree that we can immediately put a flag up and stop it uh, <clears throat> and say, uh, you know, let's change the subject or let's not talk about somebody who's not here, uh, then... Uh, we can stem the stem the flow, and if they want information from us, well, tell me what happened with so and so. Tell me what happened with so and so. Uh, I'll hearken back to a 
a comment that we made, I think, in our last class, which is you should really operate with information on the basis of a need-to-know-only basis. So you should generally share information with other people only uh, at a need-to-know level. And if there's no practical reason why the person needs to know that, then we probably want to be pretty circumspect about giving out information to other people, and especially information about others, uh, so that we don't end up getting ourselves uh, into difficulty. So, Peggy, I hope that helps. Um, and any questions about that or the verse? <laughs> well, I understand being stuck in the interpretation stage, and believe me, I'm right there with you, uh, like the actor in the clapping. It's true, and this is not one of those things, and I want to reemphasize this point, where you should go away and feel bad, uh, because we're virtually all there. Uh, and it's simply by noticing and simply being aware of it, not trying to make ourselves feel bad or judging ourselves about it or beating ourselves up about it or trying to be different um, that um, uh, is, is going to get us there. Uh, the, uh, the, the answer is to just notice and be aware of the ideas, go over the ideas, and pretty soon they start to um, uh, you know, change your uh, change your thinking. I will tell you that years ago I read a short little statement uh, from a book that was purportedly I think a statement from the Talmud uh, by Rabbi Akiva who is a very famous sage <clears throat> who said um, he who has bread in his basket today and asks what shall we do tomorrow is of those of little faith. Okay, let me say it one more time. He who has bread in his basket today and asks, what shall we eat tomorrow, is of those of little faith. And I read that verse and I thought, well, i got plenty of bread in my basket today and I'm concerned about tomorrow. I'm concerned about my livelihood and planning for retirement and all those kinds of things. And so I went to, um, to um, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz and I shared that with him. And he gave me the most wonderfully freeing response. He said, look, he said, you're talking about a guy here who's on a very, very high level. Uh, and, and you're not at that level. And you can't pretend to be at that level. You can't try to jump to that level. You can't skip steps along the way. You have to be very realistic about where you are and your concerns about the world and work from where you are. It's not about trying to get to some level of, of super spirituality or super righteousness that, that you're not on. We have to be realistic about where we are and accept that and then involve ourselves in learning and the learning can change us over time but we can't force it. Uh, and that made me feel much more comfortable. So this is part and parcel of, uh, of the growth process. Any other questions before we wrap up?
Okay, I have just about 30 seconds to the top of the hour, so we'll uh, call it quits for there uh, for, for the evening. I'm glad you learned a lot. Would love to have you back uh, every week. And uh, it's my pleasure. It's great to be able to share these ideas with you. They were shared with me over many years by uh, some of my rabbinic mentors, and it's a real uh, honor and a pleasure to, to uh, share them with you. So if you have any questions during the week, please feel free to, to uh, drop me an email at doug at thinkingdynamics.com. And let me just type that in. And otherwise, I'll look forward to joining with you next week. Thanks so much.